Howard Buffett has traveled to 95 countries, often documenting the challenges of resource-limited farmers. The 1,600-acre no-tiller with farms in central Illinois and eastern Nebraska has also addressed the reintegration of returning refugees and internally displaced persons who depend on agriculture in post-conflict-affected lands. He has helped facilitate integrated water delivery and management, including small-scale irrigation for farmers in developing countries. Here is Howard Buffett with The Role of No-Till in Helping to Feed the World. Well, I can see my job is going to be to keep everybody awake if it gets kind of late here. But, Frank, first I want to tell you, and I really mean this in all sincerity, it's, it's an honor to be here. I mean, this is a, a group of men and women that uh, in their own way have served this country, and I'm going to talk a little bit about how important you are in the, in the global scene tonight. Um, but it's also pretty amazing, I think, that uh, even as many more people here are much more educated than I am on no-till and a lot of the subjects they get covered, but still, I think most of us come here and we walk away and we've learned something. And that's a, that's a, a pretty great thing. Um, now, I, I do want to tell you, I, I learned one thing from my dad a long time ago. He used to always tell me, when he gets done speaking, he's usually offended almost everybody in the room. I counted nine sponsors when he listed them that I'll probably offend tonight, so get ready. Um, and I think it's very unfair for you to put Dan Towery up here because I see there's a salad next to him with tomatoes in it, and he can hit me from here. So, Dan, yeah, I see that. I do. Mushrooms and other stuff. So, um, Well, <clears throat> somebody earlier asked me uh, what I did as an ambassador uh, for the World Food Program, and I get asked that once in a while, but I never have a good answer. But I, I kind of heard my son, who's here tonight, uh, he, he was explaining it to somebody. So I thought I'd use his example or a little story to tell you what an ambassador does. So the, the story goes like this. There's a gentleman who wanted to buy a parrot. So he goes down to this reputable pet shop, and he goes in, he finds a salesperson and tells him what he wants to do. And that salesperson takes him back to the back of the shop where the parrots are and starts explaining all these different parrots. And this guy says, no, you know, I see there's three over here. And the salesperson tries to talk him out of those three. And he says, no, 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 no I, I, I want to know about those three. So he says, well, they're kind of expensive. He says, well, what's the first one cost? And he says, well, that, that parrot's $2,500. He says, well, that is expensive. What do you get for a $2,500 parrot? He says, well, he farms using no-till. He analyzes genetically modified enzymes, and it trades derivatives. And he thought, wow, that's, that's a pretty impressive parrot. So he says, I see there's another one next to him. He says, yeah, let's just not even go there. And the guy says, I want to know what that parrot does. He says, well, that parrot, he does everything the first parrot does, plus it advises farm credit services. It reads No-Till magazine, has produced a thesis on sustainable agriculture, has a master's in soil science from the University of Nebraska. And the guy says, wow, that's an amazing parrot. How much does it cost? The guy says, $5,000. He says, wow, that's a lot of money for a parrot. What about the third one? He says, no, I'm not, you know what? I'll just tell you right now, that parrot costs $25,000. He's out of your league. He says, well, wait, what's he do? And he says, uh, well, scratches his head for a little bit. And he says, uh, I've never seen this parrot do anything, but the other two parrots call him Mr. Ambassador. <laughs> so that's my hardworking job I have. Um, 
You know, tonight I'm going to talk about a, a few things that, that might not be normal conversation, uh, certainly not around the round tables that we have here <clears throat> or at the conference in general. Um, but there's also a few subjects I'm going to talk about that some of you here are experts on, which means I'll get myself in trouble. Um, and I hope I can provide a little broader context of the role that U.S. agriculture plays on a global scale and how important your contribution is to the world, both in helping to feed people and also setting an example of how important it is to be innovative, take risks, and challenge old assumptions, because that's what almost everyone in this room has done, some of you for 30 or 40 years. To do that, I want to discuss three areas. I want to talk about the changing landscape of U.S. agriculture, our role in addressing global food security, and then finally, our obligation to meet the immediate needs of hungry people. First, I want to identify just a few things we can probably agree on to set kind of the stage of, of where I want to go. World population continues to increase. Global protein demand is rising. World farmers are going to need to produce more, probably most of it, from higher yields. I know my Syngenta guys like that. Um, number of hungry people in the world continues to increase. Food security in poor nations is definitely more volatile today than it was even five years ago. And technology is going to contribute to some of those solutions. And technology is one I'm going to get into a little deeper in a minute because it's probably one that I think ought to be uh, the, the best understood and probably at times the most debated. We also know, and, and, and you're going to know most of these, but I, I think it's important to repeat a few of them uh, to point out why the role you play is important. But we know U.S. farmers grow five times as much corn as they did in 1930 on 20% of the land. And you think about that. Five times on 20% of the land, I, you don't have it tonight, you don't want it because this book weighs nine and a half pounds. I wrote a whole book about that. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty impressive thing when you think about what we've done in agriculture since the early 1900s. Yields between the Civil War and the Dust Bowl, they stayed stagnant at about 24 bushels an acre through that entire time. And today, uh, since that time, we're up to about 163 bushels an acre as an average. 20 years, productivity in the United States increased 40% for corn, 30% for soybeans. Over the past 20 years, minimum tillage has reduced soil erosion by about half and saved probably about almost 500 million gallons of diesel fuel. And farmers grow, and this is, this is also quite a statistic, farmers grow 70% more corn per pound of fertilizer than they did in the 1970s. Now, those are amazing statistics. Somehow we don't tell our story very well because most people don't know many of those statistics. And we're usually on the other end of, of the arguments. But U.S. farmers contributed significantly to meeting both the demands of a more affluent world and also feeding hungry people. You know, technology, we've become more reliant on technology. Technology has become more important. And that's including, you know, genetically modified crops. So I think when I look at my operation, I think about what are the things that, as a farmer, what do I need to think about and consider when I watch the technology develop and things change as fast as they are. I think one, I think how does it affect our future choices? And I think that's a big one and an important one. Does it contribute to best practices? How does it reshape the dynamics of our business? And finally, will it contribute to profitability? Because that's not one that's always as easy to identify. The answers today look quite different than a few dec decades ago, especially in the seed business, both because technology developments have been driven by private companies rather than public institutions, 
and changes have developed very rapidly. So these four questions become more important. One large reason is that seed technology developed by private companies obviously is driven for the benefit of shareholders, where public investments designed to benefit exactly what it says, the public. So the flip side of that, of course, is that private companies only succeed if they provide the products their customers want or, or, or ask for. There's exceptions to this, which are those businesses that are regulated and those that are consolidated and really create concentration. And I, I personally believe the concentration that we've seen in different parts of our industry could be one of the biggest threats that we face for our own businesses. But the first question about choice has always been important to farmers, but it may be more relevant today. <clears throat> what are some of the choices we have? Well, all of you guys know these, but I'm going to go through them real quickly. You know, and first I have to give you this disclaimer that my wife has always said, she's never shy about this either, that kind of hurts my feelings sometimes, but she always says I'm low tech and high maintenance. And that's kind of true, unfortunately. But I have learned a few things. And um, the other place I run into trouble is, you know, I get in this spring, Howie comes back to help me plant, and, and uh, I'm going to admit something that also is a little embarrassing. But I don't use a computer. I don't do my own email. Um, it's job security for a couple of people that are here with me. But, um, and uh, so they, they, every time I start trying to learn how to do anything, they just take it away from me. Uh, I know how to turn a computer on and off, and I know how to go look for my images. That I, When I came back from my last trip, I can kind of hit one icon and find them, and that's about the extent of my knowledge. So I get in the tractor, and I'm trying to set up my mapping, because I've split my planter. Didn't have any Syngenta seed, but I had some Pioneer and DeKalb, and there was a difference. Um, and uh, anyway, I split the planter. I'm getting all ready so I can map everything. and. And how he's just sitting there shaking his head. He has this disgusted look on his face. I, what? I said, this is cool stuff. And he says, Dad, you know, you always tell everybody you can't use a computer and you can't learn. And I said, you know, you're up here. You're pushing all the buttons. You're programming everything. You know, you're pathetic. So you know you've reached a new high when your son thinks that you're pathetic. But anyway, um, mapping. I mean, an amazing thing. I think of the field comparisons we can do today that we couldn't do before. I mean, it, 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 it's a great tool. Um, guidance systems. Now, I got to tell you this story too. I mean, what four or five years ago, when guidance systems kind of started coming out, auto steer, whatever, you know, not too. This is about then. <clears throat> you know, I thought, what the heck do I want one of these for? I mean, it makes me obsolete. I said, I want to get out. I'm going to drive that tractor. That's what I do. You know, so it's just like that's bullshit. So, <laughs> sorry, Frank. So, uh, two years ago. Uh, I got a new farm that we're going to go, 120 acres, we're going to go out in February, and we're going to do a new perimeter map. Lucas Veal comes down from Sloan Implement, get in the tractor, we're doing the perimeter, and we get to this corner. And he says, uh, Howard, do you think that line's pretty straight south? I said, well, it should be. And uh, since then, I found that many lines are not straight anything. but. Uh, so as I planted corn into my neighbor's field, thinking my 180 degrees is right, you know, who is this idiot? And uh, I did. I had to go to apologize. One of my neighbors said, I got a little over, you know. And uh, so anyway, he's, over, he's in the buddy seat with his little GS2 screen and my screen, and he's like pushing numbers. And hit that resume button, take your hands off the steering wheel, keep them off the steering wheel, let the clutch out. Okay. I can't tell you if it was... 20 feet or 30 feet, 
But I put the clutch in. I said, okay, what's all this stuff cost? I mean, it was like I, I said to him right there in the spot, I said, you know what? A guidance system to a farmer is like cocaine to a drug addict. I said, this is unbelievable. And there I was, hooked. And, you know, how can you go back? I mean, you can't. But anyway, row command clutches or a new, new, new uh, planter. I mean, how amazing is it that you can have this planter? I'm only a little guy with a 16 row. I know a lot of you guys are 24 row planters. But, you know, that's a pretty amazing. And, 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 it, and it, there's value in this. You know, that's the neat thing about it in the end is uh, you're not picking silage on the end rows and you're, not, uh, you're buying a few less bags of corn that uh, are a little expensive these days. So, I mean, you think about uh, what we can do today and, uh, and then add on to the seed traits that, that are going to be uh, coming along with, with uh, drought uh, tolerance and, and continue improvement and, and disease and, and pests. I mean, it's pretty amazing technology. So to me, I, I mean, I get excited about it, even though I'm not very technological. Uh, I, I see it as really bringing true precision agriculture, creating more efficiency and more opportunity. But the thing I think we have to be careful about is technology can't solve everything. In fact, it can fail. Three years ago when I planted BT corn, uh, I, had, I had some fields that, that, that um, suffered pretty poorly, uh, quite a lot from corn borer. And there was actually articles about how a lot of guys in Illinois had that problem. And I don't know what happened to it, but I can tell you one thing, I never got reimbursed for the technology I paid for. And I never got really, uh, I never got a good explanation about why it failed or what happened. We all know when a herbicide fails, it's pretty easy to grab your guy from the FS or effing equity or where we do business and grab him by the collar and take him out in the pickup truck and say, you know, you guys screwed up. And, you know, we get something for that, uh, typically, at least if you whine enough, you do. Um, but it's pretty hard to know when a trait in a seed corn hasn't really worked and what you've paid for. It's gonna get, it's gonna get challenging going forward because we've gone, what, from 70 to $300? I mean, it depends on what you're buying and everything else, but you know, a bag of corn the last five or six years ago it was you know, under 100 bucks. And so it's gonna be a challenge to know that we're, we're getting what we pay for. And I, I think that's gonna be a, something that we're gonna have to all wrestle with. But this spring, talking about technology, you know, this spring I, downloaded all my data as I planted and uh, in the fall I went to get my variety locator and make everything work and uh, it turned out that on almost all my soybean acres for some reason the variety locator just wouldn't work so you know obviously as a result I couldn't get that information thank goodness on some of the corn ground it did but you know you lose all that data and, and, you, and you paid for this system and you invested in this system and that's one of the reasons you invested this fall obviously everybody knows this story um, that, uh, you know, there's no technology that could have helped us get in or out of the field with the rainfall we had. I mean, technology is absolutely no match for Mother Nature. So don't get me wrong, I think the technology is amazing and what it's gonna offer. But I think, you know, you have to recognize its limitations and what, what we all have to be concerned with is the assumptions that come from any kind of an attitude that technology is gonna overcome all obstacles, because it won't. Uh, the human factor is still there, and uh, Mother Nature is still there. So I think we have to be careful of that. We also have to make sure, this is where I'm not very good, uh, we have to make sure our investment technology has real financial benefits. I used to, in the early days, be really proud of this. Now I'm kind of hanging my head, but I go up to my John Deere dealer, Tom Sloan, and he said to me once about nine or ten years ago, he says, Howard, you know, you should know one thing. 
I just think about this when I say this. He says, you're my best customer per acre. And I thought about that. I thought, don't tell my wife, please. <laughs> I mean, that's just a killer. But anyway, you know, we have to make sure... <laughs> I shouldn't say this because I don't qualify because I'm going to be a hypocrite, but we do. We need to do the best we can to make sure that our, our investment is, is a financial investment that's going to return something that we need. I want to return real quickly to a couple of points I outlined earlier about a growing population, reduced food security, and a need for farmers to produce more. How will farmers meet this challenge? Well, technology is going to be, it'll provide some of the options. But it's amazing to think about what has been discovered. You know, and just recently they announced scientists had, had uh, mapped the genetic code of corn. I mean, I imagine that's going to hold some pretty exciting opportunities as well. However, it's going to take more than U.S. farmers and our production here at home to solve the challenge of food insecurity, malnutrition, and chronic hunger. When you look at the barriers of feeding people worldwide, lack of infrastructure, widespread corruption, poor distribution, limited institutional capacity, and I could go on with 20 other items, we can't do it all from here. In fact, oftentimes access you know, really prohibits our help regardless of what our intentions are. So if you look at the FAO, they estimated that it's gonna take $83 billion of investment every year for the next four decades, that's $3.3 trillion, to feed the projected population of 9 billion in 2050. So what are some of the answers? Well, before we know the answers for farmers in other parts of the world, especially for small, poor, resource-limited farmers, we need to be able to understand their environment, their culture, their constraints. And all those things are different, and they're very different from what we face here at home. So, and, and, and then there's other, there's other circumstances. I mean, one of the, to me, one of the most staggering statistics that I learned when I started getting uh, educated on hunger a while back was that 60% of all the hunger in Africa is caused by conflict. Now, that, those are difficult, complex uh, problems, not easy to solve. And I'll tell you, it's also a different part of the world. When I was negotiating with four pensioners to relocate from our property in South Africa, well, they accepted our offer. The Land Affairs Agency from the South African government had agreed to it. We didn't, you know, that took like two years. We transferred money to their bank accounts. Thought we were all done. Went over there with our lawyer to meet the four guys again and kind of clean it all up. And they get in this kind of heated argument. And my lawyer looks at me, who's very respectful all the time to me, and I go, Franz, what's going on? He says, shut up. I thought, whoa, this is bad. And I thought, we had a deal. What's, you know, what's going on? Finally, he gets done, and he turns to me. He says, well, we have a problem. Go, well, what's the problem? Which doctor said they can't move? I mean, you know, there's no class in Harvard that tells you how you deal with a witch doctor. Or at Iowa State, okay? So, you know, when you're dealing in geographies and different cultures, it creates, you know, it does create unknown hurdles. Now, when we talk about precision agriculture here at home, we, you know, we've, I've already said why I think we see a really exciting world. But what, what is precision agriculture to a poor farmer? 75% of all poor people in the world are resource-limited farmers. In Africa alone, that affects 400 million people. It's a sizable number. So how can they contribute to increasing their own food security? For these farmers, access to almost everything and anything has some kind of barriers. Now, I know I can verbally describe these challenges to you, but, but in a minute, I want to 
show you a DVD I used when I was speaking at the FFA convention in uh, just, I guess it was last October. It's a quick, it, <clears throat> it's a quick trip around the world with photographs I've taken probably about maybe the last 10 years. And it helps illustrate the challenges better than I can tell you. And it covers a broad range of subjects, but actually when you think about it, uh, most of them apply to the message tonight. When you watch it, um, everything isn't always evident, but just, you know, just to highlight a few things that, that, to, to make you maybe focus on it. You know, you'll see immigrants migrate because they can't produce enough food on their small farm to feed their family, and a lot of them die trying to get here. Boy will be sniffing glue, trying to deaden the pain of hunger. This particular boy, if you catch it in the DVD, uh, you'll see a sewer down to his right-hand side. He lives in the sewer in Bucharest, Romania. A refugee survives because of donated food from the United States to the World Food Program. Children get their only meal during a day through a school feeding program. And it probably is for many millions of, of children, the only meal they get. Child lies dying from malnutrition when if that child was here in the United States, she would live. A person with HIV AIDS can get the antiviral medicine that they need, but they can't get the nutrition that their body requires to support the medicine. A group of people leaving a food for work project or building a new irrigation system to improve yields while receiving food for a food for work program in the middle of a two-year drought. When food is so basic, you'll find it touches many aspects of life. Might not be so obvious. So I'm gonna take you on a little trip here once the technology works.
you know, when I, I don't even have to watch that. All I have to just listen to it. I think most of the images, they, every one of those has a story behind it from being arrested in Bosnia to being stopped a few feet from walking into a field of landmines. And, and, uh, but the more interesting stories are, of course, about, about all the individuals. But when you, leave, you, know, when you li live in these circumstances, you're not thinking about six months from now or three months from now. You're thinking about today, and then you think about tomorrow. So that has a huge impact on your options and your thought process and what you do every day you get out of bed. And a small, and th this is what I've learned from these trips and, and the next couple of things I'm gonna say are really important if anybody's really gonna understand how to do something with small farmers that really need help in the world. Poor small scale farmers, a net buyer of food. Now that is a complete major paradigm shift for a U.S. farmer. Because according to USDA, we grow enough food for 163 people every year. That changes from time to time, but it's, it's something like that. A farmer in Africa, most likely a woman, along with her family, suffers from hunger periods between harvests. That's another paradigm shift for everyone in this room because we have multiple grocery stores and we've never seen empty, empty shelves in those stores. So, you know, if you think about in this country, we spend over a trillion dollars a year on retail food. These families live and survive oftentimes on less than a dollar a day. So you ask a mother, and I've done this, it's not an easy question to ask, sometimes interpreters won't ask it, but if you ask a mother how she decides which child will eat and which one's gonna go hungry, that's a pretty difficult question to ask a mother. And this is another paradigm shift for us because all of us here have put our children to bed at night, but we've never, ever, night after night, had to worry about watching them just, their little bodies wither away. So it's, it's, a, it's a different world. It takes different thought processes. It takes different solutions. There's also financial cost to all of this. The cost of hunger from medical expenses, lost productivity, and lower education is estimated to exceed over a trillion dollars in a generation's lifetime. These are farmers that have no access to inputs. They replant seeds year after year. I've talked to farmers that have replanted seeds for 30 years, okay? They farm small scattered plots, maybe an acre in size, sometimes two acres. They have no extension service. They've no, they don't even know what a soil sample is. They don't even know what it is. They might even live, you know, if you think about our situation, they might even live, it could be a two-day walk to the closest market. That's the circumstances you're trying to deal with. With Remember what I said earlier, 75% of the poor people in this world fit these circumstances. That's a lot of people. To get food security right, we need to reach out to those who live this challenge every day, to farmers who can tell us things that we don't know, that we don't understand because we've never experienced them. We can't make the mistake to believe that we know how to solve their problems with our solutions because if we do, we will fail and that means we fail them. So what's precision agriculture to these farmers? Well, it's learning the importance of consistent seed depth, seed spacing, row spacing, <clears throat> understanding plant population and density, the very basic agronomy lessons. It's having access to new knowledge and recommendations of how to improve their soil, something they've never had. I just, as I'm saying this, I, I remember looking up a number for, for a meeting I had a couple weeks ago where in Eastern Africa to today, in today's world, the average 
yield for corn is 24 bushels an acre. That's less than what we averaged in this country in 1900. I mean, that's what, you're, that's what the challenge is. The first priority, and this is something that took me a while to learn too, the first priority for a subsistence farmer isn't yield, it's risk aversion. And that, that is also a pretty big shift for us to think about. So to focus on technology is great for farmers who can benefit from it, but it leaves millions of farmers, literally millions of impoverished farmers, without any solutions. Now our foundation's investing in technology. We, you know, we hope it contributes to future solutions. We, you know, one project we have is a virus-resistant sweet potato that we're working on with Donald Danforth Plant Science Center. We have uh, two projects we've co-funded with the Gates Foundation for drought-tolerant uh, maize for Africa. We also have 9,200 acres. It's up from, Daryl said 6,000. I got carried away and bought more last year. Um, we're up 9,200 acres, 22 center pivots in South Africa. We're working with Simit. Some of you guys would know Simit, uh, the preeminent world leader in corn and wheat research in the world. Penn State and the Rodale Institute uh, are all there working. But these solutions won't reach millions of farmers today. Hopefully they will in the future. But the future doesn't feed people today. So what are there? There are appropriate solutions, and what are they? It's improved extension services. In most places, extension services don't even exist in these countries. It's farmer schools. It's use of cover crops, introduction of improved seeds. And, and honestly, it's the expansion of minimum and no-till techniques. Some of them are very low-input type systems. But the benefit that we get here in this country from no-till is no different than the benefit they get. Some of their circumstances are a little more difficult to deal with. In a tropical zone, it's not the same as a temperate zone. But the benefits are there if you can find out how to do it. Inorganic fertilizers, they can play a role, and they should play a role. But if the strategy becomes, and this is something that's happening today in some places, the strategy becomes to take the poorest populations in the world and create a dependency on fertilizers from fossil fuels, that's just not responsible. At a project we have in Mozambique, and some of the guys that were, we got off track in one of our little meetings, the number 22 room on organic and no-till, these guys can fall asleep now. They're here because we got onto this subject. But at a project in Mozambique, we doubled our, we didn't, the farmers there, doubled the yields in two years without a single new input. And they did it by changing their farming system it's kind of a pothole no-till system that was invented or discovered or whatever in Niger. And it's very simple, but it's imaginative. So, you know, once we get it to that point and we believe that there are other options and we have worked on other options, think what happens when you can get that soil fertility improved and you can then at some point maybe provide improved seeds. It's pretty significant. It's a, it's a, there's a lot of potential there. So I think it's clear we have to use every option we have if we're going to feed more people. We need poor farmers in developing countries to produce more to meet their own food insecurity needs, and, and we need farmers in the United States to produce more to meet a growing global demand. They're certainly not in competition, I can tell you that. An important component of U.S. farmers' ability to achieve this goal is how the future of our farms look. They have to look different if this objective is going to be reached. And I think probably there isn't, I mean, standing here tonight, when I say what I'm going to say, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir, so I hope you'll bear with me a little bit, but, but it, it is what I think needs to be said. And then we have to figure out how do we, how do we get it done and how do we get it done uh, the way we need to. But just like no-till involved from farmers who remain innovative and persistent, some people would say stubborn, 
by not giving up on making probably the oldest form of farming part of mainstream farming. And some of you guys are right here tonight that made that happen. And there's guys like Jim Kinsella back in, in Illinois and others that, you know, have spent a lifetime. Part of their profession has been to transform what agriculture looks like today. And I'll tell you what, the progress today, and Frank will tell you what does no-till conference look like, you know, 18, 19 years ago, what it looks like today. It, it's pretty impressive what's happened in this country. Um, and those, those and us, you, I mean, we're going to be the farmers that have to contribute those same ideas and solutions in this next generation. 20 years ago, here goes one of the offending comments to one of your sponsors. Deere didn't make a piece of no-till equipment. In 1990, when the 750 no-till drill came on the scene, I mean, I would say it changed the face of conservation agriculture in this country. And many people have come along with that. Uh, and you now have incredible amounts of opportunities to add and change with manufactured equipment at, at uh, you know, much easier to get, much easier to repair, much easier to replace. So, and I just purchased a, a 2510H, that's what it is, I think, 2510H uh, applicator bar. And I know a lot of you guys don't use anhydrous, but for those who do, I think this is an amazing tool as a no-tiller for what I want to do in the future. It just gives me a completely different set of options, and it's going to solve one of my real soil erosion problems, which is when I knife in an idris in the fall and I go down my eight inches and the frost is coming out and I get the, just the right kind of rain and I come and I can go around my field where I've got slopes, wherever that knife went, that's where my soil disappeared from. So this tool is going to help me solve that problem. So it was about 20 years ago when there was a little revolution of some of you farmers out there right here tonight that really helped take from your workshop to mainstream agricultural manufacturers that something today has helped with carbon sequestration, improve soil fertility, and significant reduction of soil erosion. The same's got to happen on the input side. And I don't believe we'll ever be independent of inorganic inputs. But we need to develop a system and we need to develop policies that allow farmers more flexibility and better options. I mean, Half this conference has been about cover crops, but you know what? How do we get cover crops to scale? I go home and I got a whole bunch of neighbors that think I'm a nut for what I do, just no-tilling. And when I start planting cover crops, growing radishes or whatever I do, they're going to think I've really gone off the deep end. So, you know, how do, how do we do that? I mean, we know what cover crops provide to us in terms of, you know, soil fertility and organic matter and all the improvements that we get from it. But... How do we do that so that we really, that the farming community in general has adopted that on the kind of scale that's going to make a significant difference? They're not new ideas. In fact, many of them have been perfected from, from people here. But uh, we've got to embrace it, and we've got to figure out how to take it from an individual basis. And probably one of the best things about this conference is you sit down and you start talking to people, like, oh, you did that, and, or you had that problem? I mean, this is an incredible learning experience. But there's only 750 people here. There's, you know, a million farmers out there that we got to talk to. So how do we do that? And I don't know, I mean, you know, we have to, we, we have to do it because if we don't, our farms aren't going to be profitable in 30 years and our farms aren't going to be healthy in 30 years. I believe that. So we have to find out how we get rotations and crop, uh, cover crops to scale and the things. What were the incentives? We've had, we've had incentives to do a lot of things in this country, but we haven't had them for that. 
The fact is we're probably going to be forced to do it at some point because three-quarters of farming is not, uh, not, never can say this, nitrous oxide emissions result from man-made fertilizers. I, you know, I will stand here today and tell you we've built, in this country, one of the most dynamic, reliable production systems in the world, and we've done it by using inorganic fertilizers. I'm not ashamed of that, but I will tell you that the status quo won't work, and it's coming faster than you think because it's not going to be adequate to meet the future environmental regulations or sometimes at some point along the line, consumer requirements or demands. In fact, U.S. agriculture has critics in new places. But I'll tell you one thing, all those critics have full stomachs. And somehow we got to get that message across. We see ag getting hit by energy, climate change, food safety, obesity, animal production, human health, animal welfare, water quality, and then, and I'm not picking on the USDA, but they have their own initiative, know your farmer, know your food. Well, somehow that implies to me kind of a negative connotation about us because it makes it sound as if we're, you know, number one, responsible for the end product, which we're not, and number two, that local food is better than the existing alternatives. It isn't about what's good or bad. It's about what's practical. And local food is fine, that's great, and I know a few guys who have been very successful at that, and it's a few guys. And not many of us have that option. You know, mo most of the movement today in production agriculture isn't going to take you that direction. I'm not against it, I'm all for it. But it's got to be practical, it's got to work. So change in innovation isn't anything new for U.S. farmers, and I kind of picked an example, and again, I hope maybe a few of you don't know it so you won't fall asleep on me, but if you look at history of the soybeans, 1804, Yankee Clipper comes back and forth between China. What do they have in it as inexpensive ballast? They have soybeans. When the ship gets to the U.S., they dump the soybeans. That's what they do. Then in 1829, there was probably some crazy no-till farmer who decided to try planting soybeans. And if you try to tell me that somebody was here, Frank, that was back then, I'm not going to believe you. So forget it. You can get another corn hat. But... 1990, you know, so, so they started planting them in 1829. In 1919, there were 112,000 acres of soybeans planted in the United States, and in 2009, the number reached 76 million. Production in 1919 was barely over a million bushels. Today, it's 3.25 billion bushels. The value has gone from 4.5 million to $32 billion. Back in 1919, I'm not talking about the people sitting here tonight, but back in 1919, talking about planting soybeans was as foreign as talking about large-scale cover crops for Midwest agriculture production is today. So we can do it. We've done it in the past. There's another 100 examples of that. But we've done it, and look at, look at what a major crop soybeans are today. So it can happen. It can change. And, and, and a lot of you know because you've been part of that change. And processors, farmers, you know, all through this system, Many of us embrace that innovation and change, and I think we'll do it better in the future. We've done it pretty well. I think we'll do it better in the future. So everything I've talked about now is going to take years, some of the decades to get accomplished. So that means we still need to address the immediate needs of hungry people. So let me go through the same exercise I did earlier real quickly, because I think it's important that we can agree on a few things. We live in the wealthiest country in the world. You can always define that differently, but I think we do. We have one of the most abundant and safe food systems available. Now, I know everybody at Time Magazine might not agree with that, but I'll tell you, we do. All you have to do is travel outside this country, and it's obvious. 
We, we have one of the most abundant, safe food systems available. We pay about the lowest percentage of our income for food than any other country in the world. We have more choices for food than almost anywhere in the world. And we have access and availability of all types of food. Now, I have on the back window of my pickup, and I have for years, a sticker that says, American Farmers, We Feed the World. You know, I, I think a lot of us are proud of that, but what's it really mean? Does it mean that we export more corn than any country? Does it mean that we're the most efficient food production? Does it mean we have the highest yields per acre? I believe what it should mean is we have the moral responsibility to do exactly what those simple words say, feed the world. When I travel to different countries, I'm proud when I see USA oil cans and USAID food bags. To me, they're a gift of life, and to the people that receive them, they are literally a gift of life. Can our system be better? Absolutely. Can it be more efficient? Yes. In fact, in a document entitled, and I only mention this, and some of you might be interested, entitled A Roadmap to End Global Hunger, and you can find it on the internet unless you're pathetic like me and you don't know how to look it up. Um, there are a number of great suggestions on how to improve what we do. Obviously, I can't go through them tonight, but I'm going to make one point. The Foreign Assistance Act of 1961 is implemented and managed through 12 departments, 25 agencies, and 60 government offices. How does that sound? Like a nightmare to me. It's the USAID, it's Title II food aid programs, it's development assistance, it's economic security funds, international disaster and famine relief programs, the MCC uh, country compacts, USDA's food for progress, uh, McGovern Dole, uh, food for education, child nutrition, and there's even more. So obviously, you know, all these programs kind of have their own rules and procedures, and it's a pretty inconsistent message of the world, and it's a pretty inefficient way to do it. So we can do better, better coordination, more effective implementation. But regardless of our shortcomings, I'm pretty proud. The United States has served over half, uh, provided over half of the global food assistance for 55 years. That's a pretty impressive record. I mean, I turned 55 in December. That's, I'm getting pretty old. I can't remember anything anymore. But, you know, 55 years, we've been a leader globally in what we've provided to help people that are hungry. So it means that, you know, we've done a good job in the past. It means we've helped millions of people in emergencies like in Haiti today. It means we've provided a lot of development assistance that have brought people out of poverty. It means that we've helped refugees and internally displaced people return home after conflict. But there's still a lot to do. If you look at the 2007 number, the value of U.S. food assistance that USAID provided globally, it's a little over $2.1 billion. That represents almost $1,000 for each farm in the United States. And if you break it down and you take the farmers who claim that they are that their principal business is farming, you get down to about under, actually under a million farmers, that's about $2,100 for each farmer, which is probably everybody sitting in this room, or at least most of you. So let's improve our system, but while we're doing it, let's not forget what we've done, what we've already accomplished. Um, the only part, I guess, that kind of disappoints me is that it's pretty easy to put Wall Street firm or car manufacturing company ahead of a hungry person. And there's, there's reasons that's happened. I, I realize that. And we're dealing in a recession. I don't make light of that. A lot of American families have suffered. But the families that rely on help from us for food, you know, there are populations that will never experience a recession because they don't have a single possession to lose. And I think we need to remember that. Um, 
there's a lot of farmers that help. I know them. There's a lot of people, a lot of farmers that make sacrifices or communities make sacrifices to help. But I, I believe we need to double our food assistance commitment to the World Food Program, U.S. NGOs that deliver food on behalf of the United States. We need to provide additional options. Some of it's for cash for purchase. Some of it's innovative programs like Purchase for Progress that I don't have time to explain but it, tonight. But it's, it's a pretty innovative program that WP is working on in 20 countries where they establish a better network and marketing opportunities for small farmers to try to become part of the economy. It's, it's what's got to happen eventually. And I never underestimate the impact of what new approaches can do. Between 2004 and 2008, the delivery of in-kind food assistance to 10 sub-Saharan countries took an average of 147 days. Think of that. You're a hungry person. It's going to take you 147 days to get food, you know. Um, Local and regional procurement took 34 and 41 days respectively, so we can do better. And if you're a child, that 100 days is a long time. If your child is hungry, that's a long time. We need to do more because we can't do enough when there's a billion people hungry and another two billion people suffering from either malnourishment or undernourishment. So I hope you'll seriously think about what can you do as a farmer. You're already doing a lot, but what can you do? Now, in just a second here, I'm going to close with another DVD. I mean, you know, I am a photographer. I've got to get the pictures in there somehow. Um, but I will tell you this, that we live in the greatest country in the world. There's no question about that. So I'm going to leave with another short trip around the globe. It's going to show you what can be accomplished when a country has compassion and soul. And if you're old enough, you'll remember the song.
Frank, I know there's a few guys that want to go out and run up a $300 bar bill. I'd hate to stop them or slow them down, but if you want me to answer a few questions, I'd do it. If you want to call it a night, that's good. It's whatever you, it's, it's your call. I just got a comment. I'm from Michigan. We work with Michigan State, the USDA, and the International Studies Program. My innovative farm group hosts people from around the world, Mozambique, Uganda, South Africa. And we actually had a, a gallon, a minister uh, of what would be our thought of urban development. He brought a bush, a person with his office and went on the end of the bush. And he brought it to our farm and we walked her around and she looked at conventional soybeans next to GMOs and stuff because in the bush she has been told that America raises GMOs to kill her family and her friends. And we've been hosting these groups, like I said, from around the world to uh, MSU. And those are the kinds of things that we take them to our own farms or our homes and visits with them. And we've had some just wonderful discussions and shared uh, experience with them. I hope other universities are doing it, but I have not heard. Well, you know, that you bring up the GMO issue. It's, uh, I can really get in trouble on this one. <laughs> um, there's, you know, it was only four or five years ago where Zambia, Zimbabwe, and Malawi rejected GMO corn and literally had millions of people die as a result of it. Malawi finally allowed it in and they milled it immediately. Um, but uh, that's primarily the European influence. Um, sorry if I offend anyone from Europe, I didn't have that on my list. But, um, there, you know, it is, it's the European, I mean, we, there, there's only one country in, on the con everybody treats Africa like it's a country. Africa is a continent of 54 countries with 17 different agro-growing zones and all sorts of other things in one country. You know, there's only one country that has the regulation in place, the protocol in place, supposedly the enforcement in place, to uh, grow GMO crops. It's South Africa. Yeah, well, they're yeah, and they'll probably get put in jail if they get caught. But um, but but Uganda's working on it, and Kenya may be a little further ahead of Uganda. But um, there there there's also the other side of that. There's a big danger because if you don't have the training and knowledge, and you don't have the system to support high producing yields, you can actually create a bigger problem than you have. And I, I give you one quick example, which is I was in Liberia. A uh, year or year and a half ago, and I had this farmer bring me over to a little plot he had, and he had uh, this corn, and he stripped back the husks, and he says, I don't understand what's wrong. And I said, well, let's back up. Where would you get the corn? Well, I planted it last year. I got it from Nigeria. I said, well, you know, I, you know, I asked one of those dumb questions like, well, 
what bag did it come in? You know, what variety was it? <laughs> Looks at me like I'm crazy. I got a little tin can in town, you know, and I kind of had to remember where I was. And I don't mean that to make fun of them. I just mean that, I mean, that's what they deal with. So, um, <clears throat> you know, here he had replanted the hybrid and had very poor germination, very poor looking uh, ear. And he said, now I'm going to have to go down, and he didn't say it this way, but basically slash and burn another three or four acres so that I can make up for the yield because of the nutrient loss. So everything has consequences. And when you take one piece from a system that works great here and interject it into another system that isn't prepared to handle it, um, it's like when you put something in your body and it doesn't work, it rejects it. I mean, you got a big problem. But education is the only way we're going to overcome it. So I think it, it's a great thing you're doing that. And I think that there are a few other places doing it, but we need a lot more people doing it.